Hello and welcome back to the Great Women Artists podcast. Last week we interviewed the fantastic photographer Catherine Opie and this week we interview the brilliant painter Jenna Gribben. But just before we get to this, I am delighted to say that this episode is generously supported by Christie's Auction House, who will hold two exciting auctions in Amsterdam this November. First up is the 20th and 21st century Amsterdam sale, which will be open for bidding online from the 8th to the 22nd of November, featuring works from across a vast array of mediums that showcase the breadth of creativity from the post-war era to the present day. Alongside this is Le Jeune, a collecting legacy, the Amsterdam No Reserve Edit. This collection is assembled over three generations by Jacqueline and Marc Le Jeune and their descendants and includes work by leading female artists such as Belinda de Broekere, Nika de Saint-Fal, Sasha Braunig, Georgia Gardner-Gray, Mary Sunner and others. With all 150 lots offered in the Le Jeune auction at a starting bid of 100 euros, this sale offers a great opportunity to acquire great works of art that don't break the bank. Be sure to browse the sale at www.christies.com when it opens for bidding from the 10th to the 24th of November. And if you're in Amsterdam from the 7th to the 22nd of November, head to the Christie's Galleries to view these fantastic sales in person. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Women Artists podcast is one of the most exciting painters working today, Jenna Gribben. Drawing on the traditions of oil paint by focusing on figuration, Jenna Gribben is known for her sensual, washy and almost electrically coloured canvases that predominantly portray her partner, Mackenzie, as well as her son. Working on a surface which, when witnessed in real life, appears to be constantly moving, the bodies in Jenna's paintings erupt like landscapes or waterfalls, collapsing in on each other. Get Up Close and Revealed are three, four, five or even six layers of unexpected colour, like blues, purples, oranges and hot pinks. Existing in both natural and a synthetically lit source, I'm especially drawn to those with the electric lights almost appearing as a spiritualist glow. Jenna's paintings transport you to places of both intimacy and isolation, such as that moment when you're with that one other person and it feels like you're the only people in the world. Although we often see the same people crop up, by their very nature, the paintings feel universal, like fleeting memories that you want to hold on to forever, and most significantly, they are intimate the latter being a key aspect of her work. 
Based in Brooklyn, New York City, where we are recording today, Jenna has exhibited across the globe at Fredericks and Fraser in New York, Massimo Di Carlo in London, and most recently at the Frick Madison, which paired her work with old master paintings in the Met Breuer's former Brutalist building. Upcoming exhibitions include at the Collezioni Marimotti in Reggio Emilia, and she is housed in museum collections across the globe. Jenna Griven, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm great. That was so nice. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's so much fun to be in your studio in New York City, surrounded by your paintings. I think when I'm in a studio, it feels like such a sacred space. So thank you so much for having me. Great to have you here. So I mentioned in my introduction, when I am confronted with your work, I feel like it's just me and the person or the subject in front of me. You create this space of such intimacy that somehow everything else seems to fade away. I remember I saw your work online for so long and was completely transfixed. But then when I saw it in the flesh for the first time at Massimo Di Carlo last year, I felt honestly sort of transfixed by this paint. On top of the sort of emotional vigour of the scene, it's as though the colours are melting into one another. They cave in on each other like contour lines on a map. It's mesmeric. But there's also this idea of familiarity that I love, like these everyday activities and relationships that you give precedence to in your work. So I want to start by asking you, how do you hope for people to feel and experience your paintings? Oh, well, thank you. I guess ultimately, when I think about my work, I think that what I'm trying to do is to help the viewer situate themselves in a very aware relationship to me, the artist, and to my subject, so that the the kind of triangulation of those relationships is in the foreground of the experience of the work. So the work is meant to make you think about my relationship to my subject and your relationship to us and what we're all experiencing in relation to this painting. And so, yeah, I use my partner mostly. That's really amazing because the intimacy of our relationship is, as you mentioned, really key in how the work is operating. But what I love about your paintings, like I'm looking at these paintings on the wall here, and it's so exciting to kind of be in the studio. And they literally like erupt with light. And the fact that they are on this small scale, but this large scale, and they hold so much power. But I mentioned the word experience, because it's like a sort of moving surface, your paintings. Like I'm looking at this beautiful painting right now. And just like the amount of colours that are even in one face, it's like blue, it's white, it's pink it's the yellow it's like these waterfalls kind of gushing down I mean do you think about this experience of people witnessing your work yeah so I I like to constantly remind people that they're looking at paint so I like for that aspect of things to be really exciting and one thing that's really important to me when I look at a painting is that the paint itself and the surface is really pleasurable because Otherwise, what's the point of it being a painting? And also painting something, it's like a form of mediation, you know, and it is something that's between us and the image. And I like to just always show the seams of production. So I like, for example, including these like cheap hardware store clamp lights in the painting so that you can see where the lighting is coming from and to show how things are made basically and having the paint drawing attention to itself is another reminder that this isn't a reality this is a painting you know this is an interpretation of a person's image or an interpretation of an experience and if the paint is a little on the ostentatious side it helps people remember that it's a painting 
Yeah, but I think every stroke also seems so charged as well. Like the way that it plays with all these different sort of shades of the rainbow. I mean, like it has emotional vigor in each stroke. I feel it. <laughs> yeah, and I think that the big ones and the small ones are really different in that way also. So for me, I think of the big paintings as something that you should have a real bodily experience with. And so I like it when you can really feel the physicality of the paint and the energy of the way the paint is applied. You can kind of feel the speed of the brushwork and that kind of thing. Whereas the smaller ones, they tend to have more narrative detail and they're more like little tableaus. And to me, you enter them with your eyes and your mind. So it's a very different experience than entering a painting with your body the way that you do a large painting, I think. So that's sort of how I think about it. And I think that the way the paint moves around has a lot to do with decisions I'm making in relation to the way that I want paintings on different scales to operate. It's so interesting you say like you enter the painting with your body yeah. because I mean we're in New York City at the moment and I've been looking at a lot of Helen Frankenthaler mm. paintings just because we're in New York and when you enter into her paintings the paint comes over you like a sort of tidal wave in a way and you actually enter into it and I think that when you say like you actually enter a painting with your body I think that's so powerful. Yeah. I mean, like this one, for example, that we're in front of, it's a close-up of Mackenzie's face, and you almost kind of can travel up her nostrils, yeah. you know, like they're so <laughs> yeah. prominent and like... Or you can slide down her hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the hair is... Waterfall was a nice description, I think. And do you think about this idea of landscape with paint? Because they do feel like these landscapes of watery, washy colours. Definitely, especially with my show at Fredericks and Freiser and then the one after that at Massimo de Carlo where I, I made these quote-unquote skate paintings that were kind of conglomerations of my partner's body and then the lower half of my body entwined in an ambiguous way where it's sort of like hard to tell whose limb is whose because the proportions get kind of crazy and the activity of the paint kind of obscures the logic of the arrangement of body parts in a way. And so I was really thinking about landscape a lot when I was making those paintings because I wanted them to be read as bodies and as landscapes at the same time, hence the word scape. But the word scape was also a reference to the word escape and the sort of escapism of figuration and narrative art in general, not just painting, but the idea of looking to the story or the life of someone else as a way of escaping your own experience and just all the implications of that. I'm not trying to make any judgment about whether it's good or bad, but it's just an interesting thing to think about. And the idea that you're using someone else's body and story to escape, it has implications. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. Also, this idea of paint being this like watery based medium and paint has this alchemic magical quality of transformation or like metamorphosis and it can literally transform or transport us into like another realm like I was at the Met yesterday and like looking at the Fragonards and somehow like the licks and folds you're just transported to another world mm. I mean what do you think are the potentials of paint well I think one of paint's greatest powers is just that it's such a human impulse to take colors and put them on a surface. It's something that humans have done since the beginning of being humans. Yeah. And I think that makes it forever important. The fact that it's just a very basic human impulse that we will always have mm. and that manifests in such interesting 
unique ways as time goes on that somehow are able to say things about our world in a really unique way that nothing else seems to be able to do. I think it's timeless and important and everyone can connect to just color and line on a surface. We just understand it immediately on some level in some way, even if you don't know anything about contemporary art or you don't have to have a skill set to be able to like read paint mm. I think it's just in us all and we can all understand it on some level I love that idea because you're so right it's like about this basic form and like yeah from the very beginning that humans have been using these colors I mean I you know struggle with consuming certain medias yeah whereas paint for me I mean that's why I always sort of love that question about like how people feel in front of a painting mm. because it's like I've never met Mackenzie but I can project what I want on it you know I'm looking at her teeth and the kind of brittleness of the teeth that's giving me a kind of physical like emotional reaction and that's the power of paint is like to have that timeless quality yeah, it's interesting that you mention not knowing Mackenzie because I think a lot about, especially lately as I've really been focusing on painting her, I think a lot about how that works. And what I like about painting her over and over again is that, you know, she kind of simultaneously becomes so much more familiar to us. You start to feel like you know her. You're yeah. like, oh, there she is again. You recognize and you're like, oh, I, I know this figure. She's so familiar to me now. I've seen her through so many different environments and situations. But at the same time, seeing her over and over again, she becomes humanized in one sense, but she also becomes simultaneously symbolic and, mm. and metaphorical in a way. So she's able to operate in these two different ways. And again, the breakdown between the large paintings and the small paintings I think that the small ones really kind of home in on the idea of representing an intimate relationship and extracting these moments in time and preserving them in paint. And you'll notice that they have usually a more natural lighting scenario, whereas the large ones have usually very constructed, very artificial lighting and the poses are more contrived and they're meant to be constructions of of mine and hers they're kind of a collaborative enterprise between she and I and constructing these images and she's almost like playing a part in the larger ones whereas the small ones it's like me kind of being a voyeuristic creep and like catching her when she's not paying attention you know <laughs> yeah 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 no I love that but I love this idea that she could be this kind of like allegorical figure because yeah. I mean this might sound really strange but in a weird way, the only other figures who have repeatedly come up in our history are like Venus. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like it's almost as though she becomes uh -huh. like a kind of myth. Oh, I love she. She would love that. <laughs> great, <laughs> the, great, the god great. comparison with that that'll sit well with her. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. We don't really have allegorical figures. I mean, I can think of other artists who have painted their partner over and over again like you think of Alex Katz but it's different because we're in a romantic relationship and it's a woman painting a woman so it's already different than a lot of things that we see depicted in paint in terms of an artist muse relationship but I think also the artist muse relationship has been really under investigated and I think I'm interested in the collaborative potential of it and her role I love painting for example like sometimes her obvious discomfort at being in the painting. She'll be like covering her face because the light's too bright or she'll be slouching or making an uncomfortable facial expression because 
it's also about her experience as the subject of the painting. And it's about that not always being comfortable or welcome. Yeah. I mean, it's so fascinating when you say it's been sort of uninvestigated because classic one is like Rodin and like Camille Mm. Claudel, right? Or like Lucian Freud's Many Muses or something. And actually a lot of the time it is from this like very male perspective. Mm. And actually a lot of the time the the muses were quite subservient. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, Max Ernst talking about like Leonora Carrington as his muse. And I think she was like, don't give me that bullshit or something, which I love. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But there's something such like a generosity of having this collaborative relationship which I think is totally uninvestigated in the history of art and like how have we got to like 2022 and it's amazing that you're like pioneering this yeah well thank you I don't know if I'm pioneering it but it is kind of surprising how under investigated it is and also she writes songs about me so if you listen to her records really just the last couple of records and some other singles and things but you'll hear her side of things you know in the music which is kind of interesting and I've painted some album covers and made a music video for her so there's more collaboration on the other side also that you can kind of explore that's amazing so you are the muse as well essentially yes exactly wow so I mean part of it is painting her in this very empathetic way as a person who also knows what it is to be the subject sometimes when I'm painting about her experience I'm painting about my own experience of having been looked at and it's about me as much as it's about her. And it is this sort of feedback loop of looking and being looked at, seeing and being seen. Mm, This like constant conversation. But it is really fascinating, this idea that portraits are, or like any paintings or any artworks or anything is like just as much as a self-portrait. Like even when I'm like looking at your paintings, I'm going to make it about me because I'm the person standing in front of that yeah. we all like bring our <laughs> own experiences mm-hmm. to this place mm-hmm. and actually like somehow like paintings people become like a sort of sub in for like something else that's going on in my mind mm-hmm. and that's like the power of great art right I was going to talk about someone like Alice Neal because when you actually look at her portraits of people it's like totally a self-portrait of her and mm-hmm. she like projects so much of herself onto that mm-hmm. Definitely. And I think that, yeah, again, not to keep harping on the the scale shift, but I think that the large paintings really invite those kinds of projections. They are open-ended and they do have this kind of metaphorical feel to them where they set themselves up to be interpreted personally by the viewer. They're very relatable experiences. Standing, having a bright light shown on you and feeling uncomfortable it's like that could mean so many things yeah whereas the smaller ones do put you in a more voyeuristic position where it's a little bit harder to insert yourself into the image because you feel like you're looking at something extremely personal that's about someone else and super interesting to have one beside the next I'm just so interested in the way that those dynamics work and how you can kind of make them clear with a painting mm. but there is this like such sense of like intimacy with this work like I'm looking at this work right now of Mackenzie doing the dishes and I've it's funny uh-huh. I was I was in your studio a month ago so it's actually quite interesting to revisit it uh-huh. I remember when I first saw it of course it's like this still of her but even just the way that you like make the wires on the dishwasher like there's something so beautiful and it's kind of also giving precedent to these corners of everyday life that you don't really think about that much and I think that's what your work can draw out so beautifully and suddenly like it becomes about about the tension between like the ceramic mug and the metal wire absolutely and you know a lot of that comes from my love of small paintings throughout the history of painting like a a Vermeer or something (laughs) where you focus on 
the little cup and that's always so satisfying to see mm. like a, such a beautifully painted little object and so I love having those kind of little easter eggs in the small paintings that really reward you from getting close to the painting and close looking and and give you a feeling of you know this is the stuff of life this is the magic of the reality of the world that we live in you know sparkling cups and reflections on things that you know are beautiful and whatever the way the light comes into a room is like these are the pleasures that we all get to experience and to kind of freeze them in time I mean making a painting is just a way of giving something attention and contemplating and inviting others to do the same thing so I love the idea of inviting a viewer to contemplate how beautiful it can be to just see someone empty the dishwasher. If you're paying attention in that way, anything can be so beautiful. Also, it's very beautiful to have your dishes done by someone else. <laughs> yes, it's the best. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> but also, I, it's also like this beautiful portrait of love as yeah. well, because you see people do the dishes the whole time, but when you love someone and you see them doing it and they're doing it for you, it becomes this act of love. I don't know. It's like even she's wearing like her pajamas or something and you've done her hair so beautifully. It looks almost like kind of fluffy or something. I mean, it's, you can feel that love from that. Yeah. And I think in that painting in particular, also the way that she looks back is mm. so intense and kind of knowing it becomes the the focal point of the painting so again it brings it back to the the gaze and her gaze not just our gaze not just my gaze but her gaze and her gaze is very knowing and recognizing like she's not surprised that you're there she looks Mm -hmm. around and she's like oh you know there you are yeah I've been expecting you you know it's like (laughs) which is kind of a strange thing because it looks like she's just looking over her shoulder like she should be surprised but somehow she knew that we were going to be there. And to me, that's the interesting moment in that painting is how knowing her glances. Yeah, I love that. Also because it feels like this like snapshot of a moment. And in a way, what was quite interesting is, because I know that you're such a big film fan because you've done those amazing series of Agnes Varda, Cindy Sherman, when you look at like one of her works, there's a tension between like what happens before and what happens afterwards. And there is that tension here, but it's less sinister in a way, like what I love about the small paintings is like how you've cropped the frame. And actually, I'm imagining the whole frame around it. I imagine the kitchen table to my right, you sitting behind me. Do you know what I mean? Like you almost mm-hmm. like situate the viewer and like it becomes like a sort of three dimensional, 360 mm-hmm. environment. Yeah. The small paintings do come from, you know, I collect little snapshots from our daily life and I keep them in folders on my phone but they kind of evolve from that and a lot of times the perspective will kind of warp and nothing is really on a grid or there aren't straight lines and I think in my mind it relates to the way that memory operates and our relationship to photography. Photography being just like another way that an image is mediated, but we all kind of look at our life through a collection of photographs now because we're all documenting our lives and we have these sort of libraries of memories and we kind of outsource our memory in this way. So a lot of times when you think back on something, you kind of think about a photo that you took. You might not remember it exactly the way that the photo is, but it's like based in the photo, but you know, it kind of deviates from the photo. I think the paintings kind of work like that too. They have a real relationship to the way that a memory feels, I think. 
I mean, so many ideas from this. Yeah. <laughs> in the sense that, like, first of all, certain paintings actually mark certain times in my life. Even being here six weeks ago mm-hmm. and seeing that painting and what it meant to me six weeks ago and what it means to me today, it's like a completely different experience mm-hmm. because time moves on and people change and whatever. But this idea that, like, when you also like take photos of places like it also jogs your memory in such Mm -hmm. a different way so the fact that if you actually don't take a picture at something now I'm more likely to forget it which is madness yeah exactly and so I think what you were describing before of this sort of continuation of the image or the 360 is just that sometimes there's more detail than would actually fit in terms of perspective if everything were properly drawn out with nice perspective lines or something there's just sort of more squeezed into the frame or left out or it'll just sort of like trail off ambiguously so maybe your brain is imagining the continuation into the next corner the next part of the room or something so I think this kind of wobbliness of them makes them feel more like they they go on in some way it's like it's like they're breathing as well you can like feel like the flesh of the breathing body underneath Hmm. that's nice I love that (laughs) (laughs) and why are you drawn to intimacy with painting Part of it started from just this desire to put these images into the world of specifically queer intimacy because there just aren't enough of those images. And I struggle a lot with adding noise and it's the last thing I ever want to do. So it's sort of like, what images are we lacking? What what images could we use more of? And to me, it felt important because it's something that I grew up not ever seeing especially images of queer women together. And it just felt like something important to, to put out in the world. So it sort of grew from, from that, I think. And then that sort of became just an aspect of the work. I really think of the intimacy and the paintings that really highlight that as the most important component, as just a percentage of the paintings. Mm-hmm. But it's not all of them. Like, I think there's an aspect of that in all the paintings because even in the ones where she's performing or she's used in a different way that has nothing to do with our life together intimacy is still important because there's an obvious trust between she and I Mm -hmm. and maybe I wouldn't have gotten that quote-unquote performance out of her if we weren't so intimate so even in the ones that aren't about intimacy that's still an important part because of how she's comfortable sitting in a slouchy way where her belly folds and making an unattractive face or whatever. She's comfortable being all these ways in front of me and in part because of the intimacy of our relationship and the level of trust. Yeah, totally. And I think as well, because there is so much intimacy and love in the paintings, it also becomes like this universal Mm -hmm. trait as well for love, like just generally. Yeah. And we're in this moment where we're not afraid of looking at depictions of ideas of love which has not been the case for I don't know maybe ever you know I always gravitate toward the thing that you're kind of not supposed to do and so painting like sappy love paintings or I just made a big giant painting of her crying and it was called fake cry it's just this like giant sort of crocodile tear on her face and I just thought it was so funny to make this giant painting of her (laughs) crying it's like exactly what you're not supposed to do yeah yeah because it's like the corniest thing that you could imagine (laughs) and I just thought it would be so funny to make that painting and I did and I I don't know I really love that painting 
it actually feels like exciting new territory to mm. explore these ideas. Like, why are we so afraid of love and emotionality? It, why is that not interesting? Why is that not intellectual? These are parts of the human experience that in visual art we've been led to believe we're not supposed to talk about. Totally. And this idea, you know, when we were talking about earlier with us, like entering the canvas with your body, I also feel like I look at paintings, this might sound really corny, but like I feel it in my gut. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's like I can intellectualize whatever I want and Mm -hmm. that's fine. And that's Mm -hmm. great if you want to do that. But like, it should really hit you like here, Mm -hmm. not like up there. Yeah. I mean, I think that is true for anyone who really loves art, that they feel (laughs) it in their body. And if you're not feeling it in your body, you don't really love it. No, but I think that I, I know, I'm like convinced that like everyone should love art. Yeah. And I just think like there must be one piece of art for like every single person in the world. It's the kind of thing which I think is so important about public art and like having it out in the streets. You know, like maybe like a little kid's going to see your work and going to feel accepted. We didn't grow up like seeing that kind of love. Yeah. I mean, it's powerful. Mm-hmm. It's, it's life changing. I mean, certainly for me, art has always been life changing. It's completely changed the course of my life many times yeah but yeah seeing art as a little child was the most exciting transformative thing I also think that there are a lot of people that like art who maybe aren't as comfortable allowing themselves to have a bodily experience you know who are sort of it's making yourself vulnerable as well though isn't it exactly so it's also being like not everyone is vulnerable yeah yeah and I think my work is about vulnerability in a way also you know I do often paint myself into the painting and implicate myself in terms of looking and seeing and using another person's body Mm. for my own means I try to be very open about what that experience is and I accept any of the criticisms that come with that I guess is what I'm saying and I'm fully kind of aware of how what I'm doing does require some criticality from the viewer in terms of my position and my using this naked woman for my own pleasure and paintings and all these things like I think that's interesting that I'm sort of implicating myself yeah for sure you know we were just talking about how growing up children seeing these paintings I mean I'm fascinated to know about your beginnings with art as well because you were born in 1978 in Tennessee what was your childhood like and were you exposed to art no I wasn't exposed to art at all like I grew up in a house there were no art books, you know, we didn't go to museums. I didn't see any art in person until I was an adolescent, but I was always drawing and painting. I mean, going back to the idea of escapism, it was my number one form of escapism. And I would just spend hours drawing and painting. And I was just this kind of anomaly in my family. Like, where'd this one come from? Like, what is she doing? (laughs) You know, a little bit. But um, I had an aunt who lived in Atlanta who I spent a good amount of time with, who was a photographer. And she would kind of hand finish her photos. So she was an artist 
in a way, you know, even though it wasn't the focus of her life, it was something that she did. And I did occasionally go to an art opening with her in Atlanta. So I got like a little bit of like a glimpse into that. And it just seemed like the chicest thing in the world, you know, this, <laughs> this world of art openings. You yeah. Know? My God, that's amazingly yeah. cool to go as a teenager. <laughs> I did have that experience, but in my own home, there was nothing like that. And there was a moment as a child when I found a Mary Cassatt book mm. just on a bargain table in a bookstore and I begged my my mom to buy it for me and you know we didn't have very much money when I was a little kid so it was very rare to ask for something in a store and actually have it bought for you it was wow. like not a very usual thing but she did buy me this probably like a $5 Mary Cassatt book and I poured over every page of it for years because it was the only art book that I had and I think actually so much of the paint handling and the brush strokes and all these things it's this deeply ingrained kind of information that I took in through reproductions in this Mary Cassatt book which is I think kind of interesting like my relationship to reproductions and I still love looking at art books and I get so much out of it and when I'm looking at reproductions my brain turns them into real paintings in a way I can get so much out of looking at a reproduced painting I just imagine it as real if that makes sense but also fascinating, like Mary Cassatt. I mean, now I'm like looking at Mary yeah. Cassatt like through your eyes in yeah, a way. Yeah. Because it's like, it, again, she deals with like the constantly moving surface. Yeah. And this idea of intimacy yes. and women as well. Because like when we think about like Impressionism, these scenes of women at home, there were only very few people actually doing them because so many women didn't have the opportunity to do that. And she put them on a pedestal and was like, no, I want to paint a picture of a little girl with a laptop on her lap and I want to have a look at that little kid reading with her mum and it's like it's real life yeah absolutely as women like you know yeah it's some of the most intimate paintings Mm. ever made I think and I, I was really lucky to stumble on that as a child because I was able to understand it I understood those moments because I wasn't far from them it hadn't been that long since I was the age of those young children and I could really feel those moments and relate to them and and also the magic of the brush strokes was so incredible and yeah in a way I think I was really lucky it's funny because then going back to this idea of sentimentality and all these things that book was so important to me as a child and then I became an adolescent and like a teenager and off to college and all these things and I think I became kind of embarrassed to talk about Mary Cassatt being so important I mean, impressionism in those years was so out of fashion and it's just for like suburban moms or something or it's kind of been relegated to that. But now I'm just like, no, that work is so beautiful and important and can stand next to any important work of art from art history and be just as powerful. And at a certain point, I came back into owning my love of that work and the role that it played and just my cognizance of the way that painting works. But then you went to study in Athens and Georgia. Mm -hmm. I mean, how was it like being at art school and moving away and suddenly like being an artist? So in high school, I was painting all the time. And I mean, I think since I was a child, I had this idea that I would be an artist, even though I didn't even know what that looked like. I didn't know what that meant. And then 
it was very hard to get out of Tennessee, actually, and to go to an out-of-state school. It, I had to, like, work all of these extra jobs because my family didn't have the money to pay for out-of-state tuition. And I loved the idea of Athens as a town. It's a very magical, wonderful place. And I'm so grateful that I went there because I had such a wonderful experience and made so many lifelong friends. And at the time, it was a very creatively magical place. Anyway, so I escaped Tennessee narrowly because my family would have liked for me to have gone to the University of Tennessee where I would have gotten in-state tuition, but I refused and was like, no, I'm going to Athens, even though it was only like a state away. But, you know, I didn't didn't get away that far. But anyway, they, they had a pretty good art program and their program was really hands off. They just kind of give you a studio and say like make some paintings it's and like being an artist yeah, yeah and the main thing I think that was stressed to me when I was a student there was just like you have to have a studio practice you have to go to your studio and do the work and that's the main thing mm-hmm. you know which is like so simple but actually some people never really grasp that and I think that's what they are missing or what what doesn't fall into place for them is just not having a, a strong studio practice so anyway It ended up being a great place for me. And so I was there for maybe five years, but still extremely disconnected from the contemporary art world. It was still sort of pre-internet as we know it. So I moved there in 1997. You know, you still went to the computer lab to check your email. You know, there was no social media. There was no smartphones. You know, there was no just looking up something on your phone or having like information at your fingertips at all times. Yeah. So our only exposure really to contemporary art was word of mouth here and there, or you go to the magazine store, you know, and look at the few art magazines that were available in in town and glean a few things that way, but pretty disconnected. And then I moved to New York in 2003. That's when my real education about contemporary art began. The first thing I did was get a job working for Jeff Koons. I found the job by looking in the classifieds in the New York Times and was just like, oh, you know, photorealistic painting capabilities. I can do that. My friends and I would just be like extras in movies to make $100 a day, that kind of thing. So then I sort of stumbled into that job early on and got to see all of the uh, characters of the kind of upper echelons of the contemporary art world coming through his studio and looking around and hear him talk about his work, which was pretty interesting so interesting like being an an artist for someone else yeah I mean I know so many people that worked for him so many people have been through that studio and a lot of artists I know at least at some point worked for another artist yeah and like when you moved to New York I mean like had you been here before like what was that like because even like me just like being here for a few days I'm like struck by this energy it's so electric (laughs) I mean yeah I was really in love with the idea of New York since yeah. childhood, even though I never came here and yeah. I didn't really know what it was. It's I was just, the yeah, <laughs> yeah. But then in college, I would come fairly regularly just to visit and like go to museums or galleries and just be in New York as often as I could. So I had been here several times before I moved here, mm. but it was a different New York in those days. And was it always sort of painting the figure like in your early career? Was that what you were doing? Yeah. Always, since I was a child, it was always people and portraity kind of things, yeah. you know. And then there were periods in my life when I tried to like get away from figuration or like in the early days in, in New York, I was 
painting these paintings of empty apartment spaces. So I'd paint these empty rooms and then kind of over time I would populate them with little objects and people kind of superimposed into the space. And I think that was about the experience of these alien environments that we kind of superimpose ourselves onto and like Mm. we kind of make them seem convincingly ours even though we may or may not ever feel like we actually belong in that space and yeah so nothing would cast a shadow or reflect light or anything these kind of like just objects and people that existed on their own inside of these spaces but some of the spaces would just be left as just empty rooms so I painted a lot of just empty rooms at the time or yeah just some other moments along the way where I would try to not paint the figure because it's just like <laughs> but it comes crawling back yeah that's what, it's, it's powerful yeah. you know like representation and the figure like I'm so drawn to it I, I remember last time I was here we spoke so much about Chantal Joffe mm. and her work speaks to me and it also allows me to lock into the mind of someone else like I'm fascinated how you paint your son as well so much and what I love about like Chantal Joffe's work and your work as well I love her pictures of adolescent or young boys Mm. because it's almost like trying to get into the mind of like a young boy like what is it like you're changing so much (laughs) you're developing the whole time it's like a really amazing thing to kind of imagine absolutely for me also I can't get away from my enthusiasm for figuration and painting people but I you know there was a long time when it was sort of it just wasn't really what most people were interested in for the period of time that we're talking about you know when I moved to New York until a handful of years ago when there's a sort of renewed interest. So I was kind of caving, I think, to some kind of external pressure when really the truth is that it's what I'm most interested in, what Mm. I, with enough experience, I just kind of realized the important thing is to actually focus on what interests you and kind of follow your arrow in this way. And as soon as I started doing that, the work got much better. But yeah, my son, he's another subject that I'm very lucky to have. And he also loves to participate in being in the paintings. He hates having his photo taken, actually. So he doesn't enjoy that part. But he'll do it because he loves being in the paintings. He feels really proud when he sees the paintings. It's really sweet. And he loves my paintings in general. He's really fun to go to museums and galleries with and hear what he thinks about the work. And I think that parenthood, motherhood specifically, is another one of those kind of subjects that was relegated to the fringes for a while or seen as again overly sentimental and it's been really exciting to see themes of motherhood really cropping up all over the place in the work of particularly women who are experiencing it motherhood is actually it's such an interesting aspect of our human experience yeah. and you and know I can't it's imagine like, it like yeah. this idea of like reproducing another human yeah. I mean I've never had kids so I don't know but yeah. I hope one day I will and it's crazy yeah and the level of intimacy is kind yes. of unparalleled yeah, 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 yeah. if you want to talk about intimacy the parent-child relationship is as intimate as it gets wow totally and what do you want people to learn from your work what I want actually is to kind of resensitize the viewer in a way to seeing naked bodies and paintings or bodies in general, because I think that the body through hundreds of years of use in painting has become a benign object that we think of as a nude when, you know, I kind of want to bring the humanity back to the subject and also to raise questions and feelings and thoughts about the dynamics between the subject and the artist and the viewer. 
Totally. Jenna Gribben, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. As is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests if there was a, a woman artist from now or from history who you'd most like to meet, who would it be and what would you say to her? Oh my God. I should have been ready for this question. I sort of, I forgot about this part of the podcast. I don't know how this was such an oversight on my part. Well, I mean, after all this talk of Mary Gassat, maybe I would have to say that I would like to meet yes. her and I would just like to tell her how grateful I am to what she did for my life as a young budding artist. And I would just maybe like to hear about her experience. Amazing. Jenna Gribben, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode of the Great Woman Artist Podcast with the brilliant Jenna Gribben. I am just in awe and so moved from her words on painting. And as always, I have linked to everything in the show notes. And for those in Italy, do not miss her exhibition at the Collezioni Maramotti. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Nardes Manelic and research assistant was Viva Ruggi. As always, if you have enjoyed this episode, do rate, review and subscribe as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel.